We're going to continue in the series we started last Sunday, going through the book of Galatians in a series called Freed by Grace. Paul brought this message of grace in chapter one that he was so adamant about that he was angry with the church that he helped start in Galatia, a very personal letter, and yet he was so ticked off at them, right, that, that they would allow people who would come in and say that here's the message that Paul's preaching, but it's not the right message because Paul's preaching that Jesus alone can bring salvation, that, that through faith alone, through grace alone, that you can have salvation. They wanted to have Jesus plus. And so he was upset that people were, were taking that and believing that you needed to add something to, the, through, to what Jesus had accomplished for us in life. And so he just hammered grace Grace is free. Salvation is free. There is nothing else that you need in order to be saved, right? And not only is it free, but it is freeing when you have the understanding. It wasn't just given to you so that you could come to Christ, but it was given to you to empower you to overcome going back to the ways that you used to live, the things that you used to think, the things that you used to do, and it's free to share, now, in that message of its freedom, what I felt like the Lord was talking to me about ever since I wrote my sermon is that we've got to live that out in our lives. And if we are confident in the grace that Christ has given us through what he accomplished on the cross, it helps us live a more blessed and fruitful life because we don't live under that shame. We don't live under that condemnation. We don't live under those questions that pop into our head. And by living that way, it allows us to be able to give other people more grace in their lives. I'll put it to you this way. Yesterday... Uh, we went over to Cord Lane, Stacy and I, and we went to Bardenay, just a quick uh, advertisement for Bardenay, if you don't know where that is, down by the theater. My wife and I love to go there. The meals are fairly inexpensive compared to most restaurants in Cord Lane, and when we get done eating, we remove the guilt, shame, and condemnation by walking around the pond that's there. And it's a beautiful scenario. We had the grandkids with us. They have the little ducklings walking around. It says, don't feed. I don't know how, but they got some breadcrumbs in their hands that was left over from our lunch. And, you know, the, and the ducks were around our family for a long time. They enjoyed themselves. So we were there, and our waitress seemed nice, but it seemed like she was trying to be nice. Have you guys ever experienced that? And so I just had this sense and I watched what these guys were going through because they were fairly busy and she, she did nothing wrong and she had a smile on her face, but it looked like kind of a fake smile. And so as we were eating our lunch and our dinner, I began to notice that like she would grab the food and she would have to go to two different tables to see where the food went because on the ticket, it was incorrect. And then somebody brought us drinks that weren't what we were drinking, and they went to a different table. And then there was probably another time where I watched her look around to where this food goes because there were other tables all had food on the table already. And so she had to go back to double check everything to take the food where it went. And it made me just sit back and realize about the message that we're preaching, that we don't really know what's going on in people's lives when we see them acting a different way than we think that they should be acting, right? And so when it came time to tip, we weren't tight on our tip. That's all I'll say about that. And, and not that she, was, she wasn't mean or rude or anything, but you don't know what's going on in people's lives. And so often we judge people's actions based upon what we see in the moment. We don't know what's going on behind the big curtain. And, and this is the grace message that I think Paul's going to get across to us throughout the book of Galatians, that we not only need grace in our own lives, but we need to live a life of grace. We need to be, learn to be more gracious toward each other. Now, this goes against our current atmosphere in society. This goes against the political atmosphere in our society. It goes against much of what the church is teaching in our society, to be gracious truth in love. It's about being able to express the same grace that we know, accept, and receive into our own lives from the Lord. 
And if we only had a greater recognition of the grace that he gives us, we might be a lot more gracious in the grace that we give others. Sometimes we get to thinking that, you know, I think, especially as I picked on those who have been saved longer in my message last Sunday, just a little bit, is that because we think we've overcome a few things, and if we're not careful, we start living like a Pharisee, thinking that we've overcome this, we've overcome that. I don't do those types of things that the other people do. And then on our method of measurement, we compare ourselves to other people, and we think that we're doing so much better later in life because we have so much more of Christ inside of us, right? And then we don't judge people by that same grace that God's still giving to us in our pride and stupidity. When in reality, the older you get, the more you get to know Jesus, the more you should realize you really know nothing. And I think sometimes when I've wanted to do it when everybody's here, but if you looked around even our church at times, and people, you know, we all have our thoughts about the people that we know that attend this church family. And I've at times wanted to just walk around the room and say, do you know what this person is going through? Because as pastor, I might know a little bit more than the average person of what's going on in people's lives. And so you see this person right here? I think I told you guys before, at one point, uh, we've had, in just this last few months, we had seven people battling cancer. Seven in our church. You know that uh, we prayed for Keisha one time, uh, and Keisha, who you guys don't know, she's, she's hunched over. She hasn't been here for months now. Is still, she had gotten out of the hospital. She's been transferred from uh, physical therapy or a living, assisted living to assisted living to assisted living and is getting, you know, treatments on her, her kidneys, right? Uh, I could go down a list right now of people who have broken relationships in their lives in our church family. And I just think, like, if we really knew what was behind the curtain in most people's lives, we might have a little more grace for each other. And that's what God wants us to be able to give to other people. And so as we go through this morning, you can turn your Bibles to to chapter 2. I'm going to preach through a few things this morning, and I, I will get back to everything that I just talked about. But I want you to recognize this in Paul's life this morning. When Paul's speaking, he's not only having to bring correction to the church that he loves so dearly because he was a part of of help bringing them the good news and them gathering together throughout the different towns of where their churches were, but he's having to defend himself to those people. Because what took place is, if you remember the Judaizers, who are the legalistic people, they believed in trusting Jesus as their Lord and Savior, but they also believed that you needed to follow the law in trusting in Jesus. It was Jesus plus the big issue was being circumcised, that you really need to become, quote, a Jew by covenant and trust in Jesus. And so these guys had come into the church and they'd begin to preach these things. And it says that the uh, Galatians were falling away quickly. And so when he's speaking to them, he's not only speaking to them truth. He's not always only trying to bring admonition, correction, the scriptures into their lives, but he's having to give his story to defend who he is because the Judaizers knew that in in order for them to be able to teach this message to the Galatians, that it was Jesus plus, they had to discredit Paul, and they had to discredit Paul's authority in the church as an apostle. And so the idea was, is that they could tell everybody that Paul had secondhand information at best, that what he was teaching them was actually from the original 12 apostles who walked with Jesus during his life, that he, he had heard this and taught this secondhand directly from the Jerusalem apostles, that he had adapted it, but he was adapting it in illegitimate ways because it is not Jesus only, faith only, grace only, right? And so he was defending himself. And so in defending himself, what I didn't touch on in Galatians chapter 1 is that in chapter 1, verse 1, he talks about how his authority is not from man or through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And then you get down to verse 12, chapter 1, and he says that he didn't even receive his gospel message from man, nor was taught it from man, but it came through a revelation of Jesus Christ. 
For those who know the story of Paul, that he didn't receive salvation by somebody preaching to him. He got knocked, in, in the old terms, we don't really know, off his donkey or knocked on his on or off, either way. He got some correction from the Lord, and he was given a revelation of who his Lord and Savior, who his master really is, right? The whole point of Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 24 is to argue that Paul was not a second-hander. He was not Johnny come lately, the new kid in town. He's the most recent addition to the apostolic band, right? His gospel came to him independent of the apostles from Jerusalem. And so what he's trying to express is that he stands on equal ground. He has equal footing with Peter, James, and John before Christ. And so as we approach chapter 2, what we're going to see is that he continues in his story, in his testimony. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to read 1 through 14, but we'll pause uh, after, chap after verse 6. Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. He said, then after 14 years, so he talks about his, his salvation, all that took place in the early years of his life. And then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. I also took Titus with me. I went up by revelation. He had a revelation from the Lord to decide to go to Jerusalem and communicated to them that the good news, the gospel in which I preach amongst the Gentiles, he wanted to communicate that, but privately to those who were of reputation, the apostles who were leading the church at the time, lest by any means that I might run or had run in vain, meaning that what he was doing would have been in vain. He wanted, to, he wanted to have an understanding with them. Is what I'm teaching and preaching and what I'm seeing done, is, is it in vain or is this truth? Let's, let's come to an understanding because I'm hearing from other people that claim to come from James and from the apostles that that's not true. In verse 3 it says, not even Titus who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly being brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which is the freedom we know that Christ has given us, that they might bring us back into bondage to whom we did not yield submission for even an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seemed to be something, the, the 12 apostles, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. Say no man. God doesn't favor any man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. So not only was Paul on equal footing with the other apostles by his testimony and revelation and how he received Christ into his life, but the second leg of Paul's defense was that after 14 years, he even decided to go and meet with the apostles and discuss his message of good news with them. And so in doing that, in presenting a defense it's important for us to see how he defended himself. Number one, it says that he brought Barnabas with him. If you don't know Barnabas out of the book of Acts, uh, he was a great man of God. He was a trusted Jew. The scriptures even say that he was a good man, that he was full of the Holy Spirit and faith. He was somebody that in, in the early years of Paul's life would, would go to Paul and bring him into the, the believer's fellowship because other people didn't trust him. They didn't believe what actually took place. They thought that he might be a secret spy himself or something like that. But Barnabas knew him, trusted him, encouraged him in his faith because that's who Barnabas was. He was a trusted Jew who was an encourager. That's what his name means, the son of encouragement, right? And so if you're going to bring somebody to meet with all of those guys, to back your story, to back your message, you bring somebody that they trust, that they believe, that they've been encouraged by. And so he brings Barnabas with him. He's one of them. 
but he also brings the evidence of his message. Not just somebody who can back his truth, but the evidence of his truth, which is Titus. Who was Titus? He was a Greek, meaning he was a Gentile. He was somebody other than the Jew that the Lord had fallen upon, had filled with the Spirit, and that Titus was somebody who was growing in the Lord. He was proof of the goodness of God and his grace to all people to all nations. And so he brings Titus with him. And then finally, when he's there, what's he do? The third leg of his defense is that he confronted truth. And he talked about these brethren of the faith, not as if they were preaching, you know, just another gospel or preaching incorrectly, but he labeled them false brothers. He was so strong in what he believed that you can add nothing to salvation or you're not even preaching the good news. It says that he didn't yield to submission, and here's a key that we all need to hear this morning, that he had no fear of people because God favors no man. He did not fear people, other people, because he knew that God favors nobody. What does that mean? We're all walking on the same ground. And so you might wonder, why would Paul fight for this message so hard? I believe this morning that the answer is because grace is the great equalizer for humanity. Grace is the great equalizer. Paul, when you understand the message of grace, you have to understand two things why he's so passionate about this. Number one, his own experience. If you can possibly imagine the Apostle Paul... Even after all that he had tried to attain in his own power, even after killing other Christians, knowing that he was this religious, pharisaical, the the cream of the crop of religious leaders that had gone astray because they're trying to follow after the law, and so passionate in what he believed that he would kill the same people that Jesus died for, that he experienced the grace of God in his life like he had never experienced anything before. God could have struck him dead and saved people in the church, but he didn't. Instead, he poured out his grace upon Paul's life that Paul would be passionate about the gospel and bring it to the rest of the world. That grace is what brought him to his knees, that put him on the same footing as the people that he once persecuted. Do you understand that? The people that he once looked down upon, grace is what brought him down to their level or helped him see that they're on the same level that he is, however you want to word that. It was grace that didn't kill him. It was grace that didn't, didn't like maim his life or cause him to live under this great curse. It was grace that brought him to his knees, and it was grace that helped him see other people as the Lord sees those people. And it was grace that raised him back up into a new life that would literally change the directory of everything that he would do in life, because grace is the great equal. The second aspect of why he would believe in his message so much is because what he saw God do amongst the Gentiles. You can't deny what God can do in people's lives when you see it for yourself. The Gentile church of Galatia may not have even realized it in the moment, but as Paul was getting mad at them in his letter to them, what he was really doing is fighting for them. He's like, I'm on your side. You guys don't misunderstand this. These guys are lying to you. They're trying to make you somebody else in order to be saved. I'm on your side. You don't need to be anybody else to be saved. I'm literally fighting for you right now. And you understand that when you understand that the way Jews viewed Gentiles, anybody that wasn't of the Jewish faith, they viewed them as people who were like dirty dogs from a land down under where women glow and men plunder, right? That's the way that he viewed them. But Paul wanted the Jews and the rest of the world to know that God shows personal favoritism to no man. I don't care what ethnicity you are. I don't care what race you are. It doesn't matter. He doesn't show favoritism. He is there for every single person on the face of this planet. And so the Holy Spirit coming upon the Gentiles proved that Jew and Gentile, the great divide in the Jewish faith, were actually on the same footing. So in the verses we read, it says, what did the apostles have to say to him? 
He said they had nothing to add. Now, you might have read that as an arrogant statement. But what Paul was really saying is that there was no plus in their eyes. In the message he was delivering, he proved that grace is the great equalizer in people's lives. And so now, with all of them agreeing that grace, uh, through grace, all things are now equal by the message of faith in Christ, they had come up with this plan of how to spread the good news. Now, I, I want to show you this because this shows, like, grace is the equalizer, that we don't understand grace in each other's lives sometimes. So look at verses 7 through 10. So he says, but on the contrary, the Jews and the leaders of the Jewish uh, circle, John, James, Peter, all of the apostles, it says that when they saw the gospel for the uncircumcised, that's the Gentiles who weren't circumcised, had been committed to me, the apostle Paul, as the apostle for the circumcised was to Peter, because Peter was out preaching to the rest of the Jews. For he had worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised and also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars of the faith, perceived the grace, everybody say the grace. When they saw the grace, that's what helped them have this revelation. When they saw the grace that had been given to Paul, They gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. What is the right hand of fellowship? It's not like most of you would express the right hand of fellowship. You know, you ever like joke around like, I'm going to give you the right hand of fellowship right now. So this is a pat on the back, go your way, direction. Here's your approval, right? That we should go to the Gentiles and then they would go to the circumcised, to the Jews. They desired only, this is the one thing that they asked. As you're preaching this message of grace, remember the poor, the very thing which I, Paul, was also eager to do. One thing, all I ask, go preach. Go preach Christ crucified, Christ resurrected, Christ abundant life. And as you do that, just please remember the poor. That was it. I won't even go into that aspect today. But it's slightly interesting to me as I read through this this week that the apostles would hear Paul's defense and then see the grace of God upon him to minister to the rest of the world. And then they all decide, you know what? Yes, Paul, you're called to the Gentiles, go and preach to the rest of the world while the rest of us Jews preach to our own people here. Like, what is that, right? Like, it it takes 12 of us to reach Jerusalem, Judea, you know, even Samaria. But you, Paul, go ahead with your bad message. Good message. Sorry, I meant bad isn't good. Don't misunderstand me. Go ahead with your bad self. You, you, You on fire for the Lord. And go preach that message to the literally to the rest of the world. But we won't go down the road of why they didn't want to go out there with Paul and do those things with Paul. But I want us to just focus on this morning is why God ultimately chose Peter to the Jews and Paul to the Gentiles. Why? Because you might think, oh, well, they said yes, Paul, and Paul would go. But Paul had that revelation from the Lord already. Peter knew what he was called to do. So ultimately, it was the Lord who appoints leaders, right? And so why would the Lord appoint Peter to the Jews and Paul to the Gentiles? And so as I looked at this this week, it really made me ponder God's choice. Why in the world? That just doesn't seem logical to me. In my own understanding, It does not make sense as to why God would choose these guys to go out and minister in the way he had them minister, right? Do you know anything about the life of Peter and Paul? Two completely opposite people. You have Peter who, I'm not saying he's dumb, don't misunderstand me, but he wasn't the brightest. 
And what I mean by that is, you know, a lot of you know this, that when you were raised up in the Jewish faith, that if you were smart enough, you would progress on to later schooling in, in, the, in the Bible at the time, in God's word, that, that the desire for somebody to attain becoming a rabbi was the greatest desire amongst the Jews. And so that if they didn't get past a certain level, in a sense, they were kind of flunkies, right? And so they would go back to the family trade, and they would work the family trade the rest of their lives. Peter didn't do that. Peter went back to fishing. He wasn't smart enough to move on like Paul was. And so here's Peter, in a sense, in my mind, you you might wonder, like, how would this have influenced you? Imagine this in your own life. You go through sixth grade, and if in sixth grade you're not in the top 1% of your class in the state of Idaho, then you have to quit school, and you just go learn your family's trade, whatever it is that they do for a living. Can you imagine? And then you have these top 1% that move on to, you know, high school, and they move on to college, and then they become the professors and those who teach other people because they're the smart ones in the world. And, and can you see how there might be some disdain that would develop in people's lives? Like to be considered, you know, in a sense, that mentality, though it's not necessarily true of somewhat being a flunky or not being good enough or whatever. It's ingrained in you through your society, through your culture. Not only do you face it in everything else that you deal with in life, but now it's ingrained in your culture. And this is the mindset that I imagine some of these people had, especially somebody like Peter. He, w- he wasn't good enough to continue in his biblical education to become a rabbi right? So he became a fisherman. And most of you know what the life of a fisherman is like in the Bible. And so there's this description of them being a little bit rough, a little bit tough, a little bit rebellious, right? And so he was known as the outspoken one of of Jesus's disciples, that he was the one that was quick to draw, quick to react, and wear his emotions on his sleeves, that he would draw his sword in order to defend. He would be the first one to fight, right? He, he's got a little bit of rebel inside of him, and I imagine that he didn't care much for the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, you look at somebody like Paul, who was a Pharisee, he had an opposite life. He even describes his life in Philippians chapter 3, 5, and 6, when it says that he was circumcised as a child, that he was, he was obedient to the law from the very beginning. He was from Israel. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was this proud Jew. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, that he was a Pharisee. And then it says, as for righteousness that is based on the law that they all had to follow, he considered himself in people's eyes as being faultless. The guy didn't have the same struggles. He didn't have the same issues as everybody else. He didn't go through all the same heartbreaks and hurts and wasn't dealing with all the same issues as many of the Jews that were out there. Like he was the the ideal person for all the Jews to look at, to attain to, to be inspired by. That's the guy we want to learn from. That's the guy we want to be connected to. That's the guy that we want to know. He is the target. He is the goal. Look at his life. I think of Paul, and if he lived in today's world, he would be this whole huge social media influencer, right? And so in my mind, logically looking at these two guys, who would you send to reach the Jews? You might think differently than me, but in my mind, I would think that the obvious guy would be to send the influencer, He's one of them. He's what they attain to. He's the one that could speak into their lives, right? He's the one that could show them this is the way. You send the guy who's accomplished some things in his life, the guy that's had some success, the guy that has an education. You send the guy that you think can relate well with the rest of the Jews. You send Paul. Does that make sense? I think that's who's going to connect to him. But when it comes to the Gentiles, you know the Gentiles, you know the dirty Gentiles, you know the ones that followed after other gods, the ones that were looked down upon, the ones who didn't even understand what it was to have a right way of life, the ones that had, you know, all these issues in their lives and and they just lived in this free culture doing anything they want, feeding their selfish desires, living like pigs, and they that's how the Jews would have viewed them. They just lived all this, this dirty certain way, morally and physically, they lived this style of life, and you would think, looking at a people like that, I I would think in my mind the obvious person to send to a bunch of rebellious people against God would be the guy that has a little rebel in him himself because he could relate to them, right? 
because Peter would have been able to relate to the rebellious people. However, beyond what logic says, God sees it differently because this is about grace through faith in Christ and grace is the great equalizer. We don't know what the people that were being ministered to might have needed in their lives because we don't know what went on behind the curtain. There might have been many Jews who, because of their culture, they would have needed to learn a little humility to swallow their pride as a Jew. Maybe they would have needed to learn to accept people as they are, learn to grow in grace and mercy And so God would send them somebody that would require them from day one to learn this lesson from the person who was delivering the saving message. Can you receive from somebody who might be viewed as a little less than you? It's going to take humility for you to hear his message, to receive his message, and to walk that message out. It might be the Gentiles needed to see that there was hope that there is a better way, that you can overcome evil in this world. And so God might send them somebody who has lived this out in their lives and in his message. I was listening to a pastor preach uh, on this message this last week, and uh, he began to talk about his own life as a pastor. One time he was sent uh, to a, a prison camp in a swamp somewhere down south. And he talked about how at this prison camp that he was invited to preach at, that he found out when he got down there in the state and even from surrounding states, this was a prison camp for the worst of the worst. Now, he named some people that are famous for the evil that they had done in life, right? And so all these people are in this prison camp. And he was praying to God, what message am I going to deliver to these guys? And so he he felt like the Lord was just saying, tell them your story. So the first thing that he did when he stepped up to speak is he began to tell them that in his life, he's had what might be considered a blessed life. He has never had major struggles in his life, that he's never had a curse word come out of his mouth, that he has never let alcohol touch his lips, that in man's eyes, that he's lived a good life and right life. He was always, as long, as long as he can remember, somebody who was trained up in the ways of the Lord, that he knew the Bible, that he followed the Bible. He, could, he told them about when he gave his heart to Christ at a very young age, and that from that age on, he never went into the ways of the world. But then he looked at every man out there, and he said, but my sin was no different than your sin. And I needed the same Jesus that you need today. And I needed the same grace that you need today. And so he delivered a message to them and saw several of them come and give their lives to Christ. And so in that story, one of the guys comes to him after the fact. And he said to him, you know what? The fact that you said you could live the way that you lived your life was actually proof to me that there must be a God. Because all I've seen is all these people around me, and I thought that's the way everybody must have lived their life. But your story of not struggling with all those same chains, those are my words, actually gave me hope that there's a better way. And so he surrendered his life to Christ that day. And his message in that is that we all need the same grace from Christ because grace is the great equalizer. And when God's grace is reflected, it turns people's world upside down. It'll often happen in the reverse of the way that we think logically things should happen. Now, when it comes to Paul in this message, it didn't take long for Paul to find out that long-held beliefs don't change easily. In verses 11 through 14, in the final verses that we'll read today, it says, now when Peter had come to Antioch, this is after the meeting, 
This is after the agreements upon what they all believed. This is after the plan of how to launch the gospel into the rest of the world and to bring it to all nations, into all people. That Peter went to Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas had been teaching. And Paul says, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, Peter would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, Peter withdrew and separated himself, fearing, everybody say fear, fearing those who were of the circumcision. That means those who were Jews, those who believed in the necessity to be circumcised in addition to Jesus. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas, who was the son of encouragement, was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, everybody say straightforward. I said to Peter before them all, if you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live? As Jews. Real quick on that last statement, if you're confused in what Paul is saying right there, what he's trying to get across to Peter is like you have the understanding of what it means to be free, to be live as a Gentile by the grace of God that you don't have to follow the law and all of those types of things. If you have that understanding and that is your lifestyle of the Gentiles and not as somebody who goes by the law, why in the world now are you trying by your actions to compel the Jews? or to compel the Gentiles that now they need to live like a Jew because they see you separating yourself because they're not like that. That's what he's saying in that sentence. So check this out in those verses. Peter and Barnabas separate themselves from the Gentiles. And imagine how Paul must have felt when he witnessed this. Put yourself in his shoes. He had literally went to Jerusalem and met with Peter and all of those guys, thinking that not only was Barnabas on his side, but more than likely Peter was on his side, that he fought against this, that he risked his life for this, that he met with all of them, and all of them agreed with him. They gave him the right hand of fellowship. Here you go, a pat on the back. Go out into all the world and preach the good news, right? Barnabas traveled with Paul and supported him. And now Paul not only sees Peter doing this, but he sees the guy who was the support of the second leg of his defense against all of this going with the rest of them. He sees somebody who was his encourager in the faith, somebody who brought him into a group of people so they would trust him. He sees somebody who was more than likely a good friend of his and stood by his side, now departing over a a disagreement or portrayed disagreement in the faith because they might have a little bit of fear in his life. Paul sees how God would, 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 how people would see God as the Gentiles, right? Like Paul knows that he's personally experienced God's move amongst the Gentiles. Peter had that Barnabas had experienced God's move amongst the Gentiles. And now they choose when they're in the influence of other people to separate themselves. I imagine Paul's heart being crushed You guys are supposed to be leaders, and you separate yourself over this. It's crushing to me. Imagine how the Gentiles they had had been ministering to, imagine how they felt. Like what Paul's trying to get across to him is like, I guess we do need to become Jews to be accepted. Maybe we aren't good enough as it is. I I can imagine Corey sitting there, and I'd look at those guys in the hypocrisy, and I'd think, was all of this just fake? You guys just a bunch of phonies? Based on their behavior being different from what they preached and believed? And you would think, what hypocrites? Has anybody else been there before? Paul confronted Peter in front of everyone because Paul knew the truth was at stake. Peter and Barnabas' actions reflected that Gentiles were lower and lesser, all the while reinforcing the divide to separate Jews from Gentiles. 
exactly what the Judaizers were trying to get people to do anyways. And Paul knows that when the truth of God goes, the gospel goes, the good news goes with it. And when the gospel goes, the souls of men will perish. How could both Peter and Barnabas do this after all that had happened, after the truth being revealed, and after all they had experienced? You would think it would be an impossible situation that they would ever go that direction. And so I want to give you a few, four answers to how Peter and Barnabas would go astray. Did I say Paul and Barnabas a minute ago? Peter and Barnabas would go astray. Number one, we all need to understand this. Whether you're looking at me as a pastor or you have great Christian friends in your life that you hold up on a pedestal because you think they have such great faith, you need to understand great Christians go astray. I remember years ago, I had just recently actually started coming back to the church, uh, a church in Kellogg after college and had surrendered my life to Christ. And uh, I saw one of our worship leaders start having an affair on his wife and created a mess in the church, of course, and all this stuff happened. And then the pastor went around and met with all these different families that were connected. And he came to our house. And I remember thinking uh, at the time, like, you know, I can accept that. That's okay. I know that he was imperfect. I know that, you know, stuff happens in life. But I remember saying to that pastor, but if this person, and I gave him a name of somebody in the church at the time, if this person ever fell, I would be in a world of hurt. And the sad thing is that person that I said doesn't go to church today. And I thought now, I thought later on and now looking back on that, what an immature statement to make. Because what I saw in that person's life was that he was a great Christian, a great man of faith, somebody I aspired to that I held up. And what we need to realize is that we aspire to no man but Jesus Christ himself, no matter how great you think some people are in their faith. In Acts 14, 15, both Barnabas and Paul they're put in this category of, of being portrayed as gods to people, right? And Paul cries out a warning to those people. And I want to say that this is a warning that should be stamped over the biography of every single Christian. He says, why are you doing this? Why are you holding up us up on pedestals as if we are gods, treating us as if we're somebody special? He says, we also are men of like nature with you. We're just like you. More than once, Paul confessed that he was a sinner and that he had yet to arrive at perfection. Great Christians can also make great mistakes. Number two, why would they do that? Because fear is a force. We sang in, in, in one of the last songs about grace helping us to overcome fear. In verse 12, it says, Peter fearing those who were of the circumcision. He feared them. It was fear that caused Peter to do this, caused Peter to override what he knew as truth. It was fear that would cause Peter to override what he had experienced in life. It was fear of man. that would cause him to fear those of the circumcision. And I don't know what would cause Peter, who was the bold one, the outspoken one, the first one to draw his sword to battle. You know, I don't know if these men were capable of violence. I don't know if he, he didn't think it was wise enough to defend the freedom that they might see in his life, that maybe he couldn't preach that message to them as well as Paul did to everybody else. I don't know if he thought that he would look foolish by eating amongst the Gentiles or that they wouldn't join with him if they saw him doing that and they would separate and it would hurt their friendship. I don't know if he was worried about them not being friends anymore. Is that ever a fear in people's life? 
why, why we go and make choices like we do sometimes. I don't know if he was scared of conflict that might arise out of the situation because oftentimes we'll fear conflict with other people that will allow us to compromise in what it is that we believe. There's a lot of reasons why we compromise in life, but all too often it comes back to this one thing that we fear and we fear man. The third reason why is because uh, I believe we see Barnabas be complicit in the behavior because he was vulnerable as an encourager. He was the son of encouragement. And let me put it to you this way. If you don't know this, Barnabas would have been considered the older man amongst him and Paul. He would have been considered at one point the more experienced Christian amongst the two. That he might have been the one that helped influence Paul early in his faith. That encouraged Paul early in his faith. And as encouragers are, are gifted to be you know, so kind and polite and uplifting to other people, the same gifting, the same thing that's been given to them as a gift, can also be their curse, right? Because you want to make people feel good about themselves. You don't want to make them feel bad. You don't want them to be discouraged. You don't want them to maybe have conflict with you or look at you in a different way. You want to be the hero in their life. You want to be the positive one in their life. And so there is this tendency when you're somebody who is very encouraging to minimize the importance of truth for the sake of relationships, Four, my last one, is the foolishness of trusting in past experiences. As I stated earlier, Peter experienced God's grace in his own life. He experienced God's grace in the life of the Gentiles at Cornelius' house. Would have blown his mind and been a, a crazy experience for him to see God fall on Gentiles. When you think about Barnabas, Barnabas experienced God's grace in his own life, and was able to see what God was doing in Gentiles' lives as he walked with Paul through the ministry. In Acts 11.24, we, we see again that Barnabas was good, full of the Spirit, full of faith. But obviously, here's what we need to hear, especially all us Pentecostals and Charismatics. Experiences, though I believe they're of utmost importance, in knowing truth, they don't always make the impact we think they do. And good Christians aren't always full of the Spirit. Barnabas may have been known as a man that was full of the Spirit, but he wasn't full of the Spirit when he made that choice. Barnabas may have had an experience with the Lord, and Peter, or we know that Peter had these great experiences with the Lord, but those experiences weren't enough to alter them from making a different choice. Past experiences, past usefulness are no guarantee of future obedience. The Christian life is a race to be run and finished. It's a, it's a fight to be fought and won. It's a faith to be kept to the end. And there is no place for coasting or drifting in our faith. And I want to close with this. The cause of God will triumph through all the weakness and failures of his people. Every time we look out, it's typically not on our own lives, but once in a while, what's going on in other people's lives, and we worry about God's message. The cause of God will triumph through all of the weaknesses and the failures of his people. I want to show you this real quick. Here's the continued equalizing of God's grace throughout the building up of the early church. For all of the battles that Paul might have had with Barnabas and Peter in those circumstances. And if you know Paul's battle with John Mark, who was once on, on a missions trip with Paul and Barnabas and, and went home and Paul wouldn't bring him on the next one, which caused the separation between Paul and Barnabas because Barnabas wanted to be the encourager of John Mark, that John Mark still had these good things in him and that John Mark was still useful and all of these things. And Paul was like, adios, don't want him, don't need him. And he goes his own way, right? For all of these battles, what we need to see is the continued equalizing of God's grace in this story. Not only do they, do they split over this whole situation, but throughout the different books of the New Testament, the letters to the churches, what we see 
is God's grace at work amongst the church. In 1 Corinthians 9, 6, Paul would write a letter to that church, and he writes in there that sometime after separating from Barnabas, they had a big fight that caused them literally to split in ministry. Paul refers to Barnabas as a fellow worker who shares his life and labor. At some point, the breach in their relationship through the grace of God and the grace they gave to each other, it had been healed. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, Paul would write to Timothy, and he would say, you know what, I'm here, and Luke is with me. But please get Mark, John Mark. You know, the guy that I didn't want to travel with us because I didn't believe that he was good enough or that he could make the trip again. I didn't want to have his failure in the ministry as we're traveling. You know that guy? Get Mark and bring him with you. He's useful. He's now viewed Mark differently than he previously did. And I believe that Paul saw grace and there was a relationship that had been restored. For the differences in Paul and Peter, and they were great at times, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. I'm going to read this from the voice. It says, so my friends, this is Peter writing to the church, while we wait for the day of the Lord, for the return of Christ, work hard to live in peace without flaw or blemish, and look at the patience of the Lord as your salvation. Our dearly loved brother Paul, according to the wisdom God given him, has given him, has written about this. For all of their differences, Peter would later write in the Bible that Paul was a dearly beloved brother in the Lord. And not only would he say that he was a dearly beloved brother, but that what he wrote was considered scripture inspired by the Lord at that very moment. The final miracle of God's grace is that when there was contention amongst Paul, Barnabas, Mark, and Peter, listen to this, huge contention. Here's the final miracle I want to talk about. None of them quit Jesus or the ministry of the good news. Great divides amongst the brethren of the faith, leaders of the faith. None of them quit God. None of them quit ministering the good news to others' people. God's grace has equaled everyone out. Now listen, God has done this again and again in history. Out of the ashes of failure, he fans a few embers into a new fire that burns for his glory. The defeat of God's people is always temporary. And the celebrations of the enemies of God's people, they're quickly ruined by the wisdom and the grace of God. My challenge to all of you this week is let's make our aim this week to magnify God's grace. If we learn to accept more of God's grace into our own lives rather than focus on our accomplishments or our successes, our achievements, we would be so much more fruitful living by his grace. It's not about us. It's about him and what he's done for us. And then if like Paul and Barnabas and Mark and Peter, we could do better at extending that grace to those around us. The great equalizer would also be the great unifier of the church.